Well, as we begin this morning, I wanted to draw your attention to this attractive flyer. Uh, <clears throat> we've been concerned as the elder board for quite a while that, you know, Sunday morning, Victory for Adults, just isn't quite enough. So we want to be able to supplement with some a little bit more in-depth understanding of what it is that we believe. And so we're going to be doing a Christian belief series. Uh, we're going to do it, there's actually 20 in this series, done by Wayne Grudem, by the way, if you're familiar with that. Uh, so we're going to do it in uh, four or five week sessions. So we're starting the first one on June 23rd. And it'll be a Wednesday night. It'll be a bring your own dinner. <laughs> uh, and then as you're eating, then we'll probably start the video. And then after that, we'll have a discussion time. And our intent is starting at 6 and be out of here by 7.30. And there will be child care. Usually only for the small ones, though. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, if you're going to commission a survey of the least love and most controversial passages in the Bible, this text would be number one or, off, or probably pretty close to it. Uh, I keep getting these short straws, but that's okay. <laughs> you did? I did. I'm out of practice. It's, it's been over a year, so. Children's Church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is probably the shortest text that Marty and I have ever preached from. Uh, let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for your word. Yet again, it shows us not only what we are short in, but also what you provide. And I thank you in this case that you provided much, much grace. And we need it. Uh, the marriage relationship is one that's uh, fraught with difficulty. Uh, there are all kinds of way, problems in trying to adjust one sinful human to another. But I ask, Father, you'd help us to uh, see this morning how it applies, whether we're in a situation where it's a, you're a, a wife or maybe someday you might be one, but any, all of us have family members uh, and people who are going to run into who need to understand these principles. So help us to understand what it is that you're trying to get to here and help me not to uh, clutter it up. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, despite the brevity of this particular passage, it has generated a whole lot of heat over time, and very little light, unfortunately. Uh, now, the content itself, it seems pretty obvious. The problem is in the application. That's where the angst comes from. Because God established the marriage relationship, remember, on the sixth day of creation. Uh, and that's when he created a woman, who we even called Eve, in order to complete the man that he created, Adam. How binary of him. Um, <laughs> And God states that reflecting his image, he says, requires a man and a woman. Not man, not woman, but he says, but both, together. So from the beginning, marriage has been the most intimate relationship two humans can experience this side of glory. 
Well, you'll always know that the first couple decided that honoring God was not nearly as important as seeking self-fulfillment, and so they treated God with contempt by disobeying him. And as God had warned them, they died. They lost the close, intimate spiritual contact that they had with God and with each other that they'd enjoyed up to that point. And, and their actions pl- plunged them and us into a downward spiral of rebellion against our Creator. And selfishness toward one another becomes very obvious in marriage. No surprise there, because God told Eve at the very beginning, in chapter 3, immediately after her sin, he said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's the warning. And he was absolutely right, wasn't he? But these God-ordained effects of the sin of our first parents really show us why our text this morning, I think, has become such a battleground. Albert Moeller wrote this in a recent whoops, blog entry. For years now, we've been tracking the course of the moral revolution in sexual morality and the entire contour of Western civilization. Driven by what was first known as a sexual revolution, It quickly became a revolution in just about everything else. But sex was always in the picture. And one thing led to another. In my book, We Cannot Be Silent, which I hardly recommend, I cited how the rise of contraception came just before the advent of no-fault divorce, which came before the legalization of abortion, which just in following sequence carried us through things such as an increased tolerance for cohabitation, for sex outside of marriage, Eventually, for the redefinition of marriage as two men or two women with the advent of so-called same-sex marriage. Now we're looking at polygamy and polyamory. So the enemy of our souls, who exists, of course, to sow discord and death, attacks the family because he hates God and he wants to destroy anything that God intended for good. And marriage is good since God created it and declared it good, which makes it a prime target for Satan and for sin to distort and to destroy. So as a result, great care has to be taken to make sure our three verses in Ephesians are misunderstood and misapplied for the last 2,000 years. So I'm going to try to do this morning the impossible. I'm going to try to correct the misunderstanding of these verses and then touch on how they've been misapplied. So buckle your seatbelts. So if you're a single woman, never married, maybe widowed, divorced, or separated, this text does not directly apply to you. However, I think there's still some insights that we can glean, like every other part of Scripture, if you're going to prepare for a future marriage, or like I mentioned, if you're going to be counseling friends or or children on what the meaning of marriage really is. Now, first of all, of course, to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to set these verses in their context. Not that you're tired of hearing that expression. Anyway... Because unless we do our best to understand the Bible as the original hearers understood it, before we jump a few thousand years into the future, into our time, if we don't do that, if we don't understand what it meant to the original hearers, we face the very real possibility of misusing Scripture. Well, in the original language, you may find this intriguing, verse 22 reads literally, Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, you legal scholars are going to notice something right away. The verb submit is not there. It's supplied by the translators. 
So I guess that means that all their arguments you know, about submission are moot because the word isn't there. However, it doesn't let us off quite that easy. Because since that verb is not in verse 22, we need to go back to the start of the preceding paragraph, which is in verse 15. Because there's a structure underlining these verses. And it begins, I'm going to try to lay out the structure here. It begins with three contrasts. And then after you look at those three contrasts, the third contrast then is amplified into three commands. And the third command that's listed there is then amplified into three relationships, kind of like little telescopes. So let's look at the first, we'll look at the three contrasts in verses 15 through 18, where he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That's a contrast. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Another contrast. And then he says, but not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's that word, but. There's a contrast. Now what he does, he takes that final contrast, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, and that, that particular uh, contrast becomes the focus then in the next verses because now we're given three commands that relate directly to that contrast. So addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, where he says, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. That's a command. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. That's a command. And then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, too, is a command. So following the same structure, what he does, he takes that final command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and he expands it into three relationships. First off, though, you need to realize is that if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to do what these commands require. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It is not a mystical experience. It's not necessarily accompanied by all kinds of visible signs. It simply means whenever you are aware of, through the Holy Spirit, unconfessed sin in your life, You go to the Lord and you confess it. You agree with him that you sinned, and you ask the Holy Spirit to take control of your life again, and you are filled with the Spirit. That's why that expression literally in the Greek is, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a present action. It's not a once once and for all action or experience. So this third command, to submit one another then, out of reverence for Christ, means really you're going to submit to proper biblical authority. So then he expands that particular command into uh, three human relationships, beginning with the marriage relationship, and he goes all the way down into the first part of chapter 6, talking about children, obeying your parents, and bondservants or slaves to obey your masters. Not submit, but obey in those two cases. Submit is used in reference between the wife and her husband. But in each case, if you go back to to verse 21, the submission in these relationships really is to reflect Jesus' submission to his Father. And I think now it makes more sense why that verb submit is not used in verse 22. If you read verse 21 and 22 together, leaving out that second submit, it reads like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ, Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Makes perfect sense. But sometimes since we like to break things up into verses, we've got to put the verb in there. We don't think in terms of paragraphs like Paul wrote this. Surprisingly enough, he didn't include verse indications in here. Um, 
That, that, that came in the 1500s. Anyway, so he's saying that a wife submitting to her husband is the first example of what it means to submit to one another. So really, this verse 21 is a, is, is a general introduction to Paul's commands relating to human relationships. It, it's not a standalone command. So we're, the, the, Jesus becomes now, he says here, our paradigm for what joyful submission looks like. Things we see and experience in our material world are always reflections of deeper spiritual reality. And we go to Philippians chapter 2, probably one of the most famous passages dealing with submission, where Jesus, or or told, uh, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the word humble is being used there. He humbled himself. But that's really talked about Jesus submitting joyfully and willingly to God the Father because that was the plan. That was God's plan for the ages, established before creation. And remember, we saw this back in chapter 1 in the orthodoxy part that Marty talked about in uh, the book of Ephesians, the doctrinal part, where it says in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is a long-standing plan that God has. And he restates that plan in particular in the final 13 verses of chapter 5. And if you look down to where he concludes this, that section, this paragraph, it starts out with wives submitting and then it goes to husbands. In the very end, He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, Paul's quotation in there, if you probably see quotation marks in your translation, is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in the account of creation. And what Paul's telling us here is that his teaching is based on God's revelation from the Old Testament. It's not some new revelation he got in the dark of the night or some new insight that he got somehow and maybe in his teaching ministry. And there's no gradual evolving of the nature of marriage from primitive ideas to new modern ones like we're often taught. There's rather a pretty consistent devolving from God's highest standard for marriage to the primitive pagan ones that our culture holds dear today. They are not enlightened. So Paul's view of marriage goes way back to the original order of creation, which, as you remember, by the way, was considered by the creator very good. But actually, this text tells us that Paul's understanding of the nature of marriage goes back further than creation. We've already seen at the very beginning of Ephesians that God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. God planned in advance for the creation of the, of the universe for the salvation of human beings. He knew what was coming. So Paul is, under, is expanding our understanding of that to include the marriage relationship. He's saying that God modeled marriage on the covenant love between Christ and the church before there was an earth, before he began the process of redeeming the world that was made subject to death and decay by our sin, 
and before there was the church. In God's mind, spiritual realities always precede material ones. Everything in God's creation is intended to illustrate a spiritual truth that existed in God's mind prior to its taking some material form. And he says, marriage is a profound mystery. It's a deep mystery. It was a fact that was hidden in the past, but now it's been revealed in Christ. Which is, means that marriage has always been an acted-out parable of the covenant love between Christ and the church. Even though Jesus' appearance on earth is not going to occur for a long, long time from the time of creation. So therefore, Paul is telling us, I think this is key, that the roles of husband and wife derive from the roles that God designed for Christ and the church, not the other way around. Marriage is not a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church after the church appears in history. Marriage is not an afterthought. Even before creation started, God saw that there would be a need for a savior for mankind who would bring about a new family, the church, to magnify his glory. So marriage is God's idea of how to illustrate that spiritual concept. So we use the spiritual concept comes first, the material form it takes, in this case, is marriage. So confusing or minimizing the role of husbands and wives obscures the meaning of marriage as really as a drama of the covenant love between Christ and the church. Which ought to give us a hint as to why Satan hates marriage so much. And he hates the family so much. And he's always looking for a way to destroy God's pattern, God's plan. So with that in mind, we're going to go back to verses 23 through 24. And relate it to the overall context. So the first thing you need to see is that verses 22 and 24 say the same thing. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then it's repeated in verse 24 in slightly different terms. Where he says, now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit and obey everything to their husbands. And sandwiched in between, really, is the reason for that submission. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So whatever this word submit means, it has to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. The first question he didn't have in mind, well, did Jesus submit to the Father during his ministry on earth? We already saw that that's true when we looked at Philippians chapter 2. And I think the most poignant example in Jesus' life occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed and, is, and arrested, where he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus, in his great distress, asked his father if there was a plan B that didn't involve his death on the cross. But he also knew that the cross was plan A, and there really was no plan B. So he submitted to his father and completed his part of the plan. And Hebrews 12 says he did it joyfully. Now, was Jesus any less of the God-man because he submitted to his father? Was submission a bad word? Did he become a second-class person in the Trinity because he submitted? You have to say no. So submission actually has a positive role to play. Now, the word submit also has to recognize that the the truth we saw expressed back in the book of Galatians. 
where he said there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor flea, f- free, <laughs> there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So one thing the Bible is clear about is that the wife has the same value to God as does her husband. He says we're all one in Christ. And that's especially true in a marriage because the relationship of a wife and a husband is described in verse 31 as becoming one flesh, which is a term that's reserved for married couples. So keep in mind that these verses are addressed to a wife in relation to her husband. It doesn't mean that a woman has to submit to every man. It only applies to her husband, her own husband. Women don't need to submit to men in general. For instance, if the man that you are dating tells you that you need to submit to him because you are a woman and you're a Christian, he's really looking for a concubine, not a wife. It also means that you don't have to be married to be complete, whether you're a woman or a man. Paul told us that God gifted him with the ability to remain unmarried, although he strongly recommended it for others. So what do we boil it down to? What is submission? Cut to the chase here. Be willing to place yourself in a position under your husband who is the authority of your family. Be in that position of being the best one to make your husband successful. Hmm, sounds like a servant. Sounds kind of like what Jesus did. Well, as we all know, this word submit has been misunderstood and misapplied, especially by men, for centuries. Which shouldn't surprise us, because the fingerprints of the curse in Eden are all over creation. Especially in the heart of each and every person, even including men, surprisingly enough. So first of all, let's make sure we understand that we understand what submission doesn't mean. Sometimes the negative helps clarify the positive. For instance, it doesn't mean that a wife is commanded to obey her husband as a child would obey his parents or as a slave would obey his master. Different words used between wives and children and slaves. Now, unfortunately, a lot of men treat their wives as doormats. I mean, they walk all over them as if they had no sense, they have no ability, as if they're somehow inferior, which is not what this word means at all. So submission, the word that's used for wives to husbands, is the word that talks about two people who are absolutely equal in value before God. But the wife makes a choice to place herself as an equal under the leadership of another equal, her husband, in order that there can be order and function in the family. The whole purpose of this is so that it matches God's design, his plan A. So if you have a household that's led by two personalities with differing skills and backgrounds and abilities and sinful hearts, there needs to be some way to maintain some semblance of order. So submission is not an issue of value, but it's all about order. As Vadi Bakum, who's a a uh, preacher from Africa puts it. He says, anything with two heads is a monster. You need either to kill it or put it in a cage and charge people to come to see it. And sadly, we have an epidemic these days of used and abused women. That's why the Bible doesn't say women submit to men, but he says that a wife does submit to her own husband as she does to the Lord. So that immediately excludes moral wrongdoing. No husband has, his, has the right to ask his wife to do something that is morally wrong. Which is always taken for granted in Scripture. But in all other areas, Scripture is indicating that the, the woman needs to allow the husband, sometimes force the husband, to make the final decision. 
and the husband, of course, is expected, I mean, he's wise if he does, to encourage his wife to express her desires, to, to speak her viewpoint, even to argue the matter, if it's important, to bring out what she feels is the right way, because she really can't be a helper if she doesn't. But the ultimate decision, really, she needs to honor his choice, painful though it might be. Which says nothing about a woman's ability. I know you wives are better educated, you're smarter, you're more gifted, your personality puts men to shame, you're a whole lot better looking. But you need to die to that and be filled with the Spirit of God. (laughs) You can't do this unless you're being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And God essentially says, wives, I don't care how much intelligence you have, I don't care how many spiritual gifts that you have, I don't care how much energy you have, I don't care how much better you look than your husband. Wives, he says, submit to your husbands. But God, you don't know my husband. Right, I only created him. You need to trust me to work through your husband. And do this as an act of love to me, not necessarily to him, but to me. Just like the church has to trust Christ even when things look kind of bleak sometimes. So do it it God's way. Unless you wives are filled with the Spirit of God, there's really no ability within you to control that urge that came via Eve to try to take control and to dominate. You can't control it on your own. But he will strengthen you with power from the inside out, as you've already seen from the book of Ephesians, so that you can never do now what you could, you could, you could never do before what you know now and, say, and be able to say to God, this is your design. I don't care for it particularly but I choose to do it. And God's response to that is always great. I'll meet you at the point of your obedience and I'll fill you with my fullness and I'll fill you with my joy. So that kind of gives an inkling of what the text means. So how do we apply it? And here's our launch out into deeper waters. However, I have a distinct advantage in that for 52 years I've married to a woman who exemplifies this. So I've learned some of this the hard way. Um, And uh, anyway, she's helped me understand what this means by forcing me to be responsible in areas where I don't want to be. And a whole bunch of other things, too, we're going to talk about. So the first principle is submission involves respecting your husband. Remember down in verse 33 where Paul summarized all that he was talking about between the relationship between husbands and wives? He repeated that the husband is to love his wife However, he said it, not using the word submit this time, but says that she must respect, literally, fear, must respect him. So a whole lot of submission involves respect. Because how does a man spell love? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That is love to most men. So submission means not subverting your husband's will and desires through deception and manipulation or whining because 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that love does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs so if your husband offends you once in a while or hurts your feelings and he asks for forgiveness don't keep your heart your hurt that you experience in permanent memory but delete the file before it becomes part of your permanent resentment file Get rid of it. If you keep record of all wrongs or slights or offenses, it'll poison your relationship. 
So at the very least, submission means that a wife not attack her husband or put him down. Don't be like this. My wife is always nagging. I remember to bring the stroller, the diaper bag, even an extra set of clothes. But all she can talk about is how I forgot the baby. So part of submission is supporting her husband and encouraging him. If he makes a mistake, she needs to make the correction, gently, but she needs to do it in a way that assures him the fact that she still is loyal and she respects him. I mean, if you lose it in front of children or friends or fellow shoppers, that doesn't show respect. That's very hurtful. And maybe to start with, a simple exercise might be just to let him finish his sentences. Anyway. Enough said. A second principle is that submission does not mean passivity. I mean, a wife can be submissive, be submissive and still actively try to influence her husband for God. And that's where we come to First Peter passage, First Peter chapter three. Likewise, following the example of Christ, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect, your respectful and pure conduct. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So she, Peter is saying that the wife, even whose husband is disobedient to the Lord, is not told to be passive and not influence him, but she's told how to influence him. He says, by her quiet and gentle spirit, a winsome spirit. So the command to speak the truth in love applies to wives as well as husbands. So a, a, a submissive wife needs lovingly with respect to admonish her, her, admonish her husband if he's in sin, as you learned in the letter of Galatians. Once again, if anyone is caught in a transgression, brothers, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So a wife really needs to respectfully, truthfully, communicate her dissatisfaction with her husband's insensitivity or passivity or aloofness. And and she might need to express her opinions vigorously so that her husband knows exactly what she thinks, which often is not an issue. But without honest communication, there's really no way that a marriage can really grow in intimacy. I mean, Brenda Rainey, I don't know if you about the family ministry with Campus Crusade, Brenda Rainey in her book... She tells the story of a county commissioner in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who was standing with his wife on a sidewalk surveying a county road project. And one of the construction workers out there recognized her and says, Hey, Nancy, remember me? We used to date in high school. And her husband teased her by saying, Aren't you glad you married me? Just think if you'd married him, you'd be the wife of a concrete finisher. I looked at him, she said kind of sharply, No, if I'd married him, he'd be a county commissioner. <laughs> But submission means that after a a thorough, honest sharing of opinions and feelings, if there's still disagreement, the wife needs to go along with her husband's decision as long as it's not sinful. But keep in mind, he's going to answer to God for that decision, as Marty's going to tell us next week. So he should only override his wife's objections after a whole lot of prayer and fear and trembling if it's an important decision. 
And I can think of very few instances where overruling Charlotte's opinion in a decision came out all that well. I learned to find out why she doesn't agree before I proceed to make a potentially foolish decision. And if she respects me, then it would naturally follow that she'd be willing to voluntarily follow my lead. But I've seen the effects of women who think that the essence of their relationship with their husband was strictly submission. No matter what the husband did, no matter how evil his behavior, no matter how damning the consequences, they just acquiesced and submitted. Passive-aggressive. But I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul intends here. There's another principle involved here. Submission means respond to your husband as the leader of the family. Now, any married man who thinks about it often feels threatened and incompetent when it comes to leading your wife. We know we didn't get this job by demonstration of competence. I mean, if our feeble attempts to, to meet lead with criticism or apathy, we probably won't try again, at least not for a long time. Because we husbands, once again, are really good at passive aggressiveness, too. And if your husband takes a stab at offering leadership, giving leadership in your marriage, even if it's inept, you need to start somewhere to encourage him. I mean, if he makes a suggestion for a romantic evening together, don't criticize his idea, criticize his idea, even if it's going to a restaurant with the word pit in it. (laughs) Be responsive, not just necessarily resistant. But submission also does not require a wife to bury her talents and her gifts. When you look even in the New Testament, there are a whole lot of instances of gifted women in the Bible and in church history who have been greatly used by God. I mean, Priscilla is often mentioned ahead of her husband's name, Aquila, right very unusually in the book of Acts, and she's probably the prominent one in helping Apollos get his theology straightened out. Timothy's grandmother and his mother Paul's one of his key, his key apostles or disciples. They, they played a key role in training him in the use of the scriptures. I mean, women have a huge ministry in influencing their children to follow the Lord. Paul, in, the, in chapter 16 in, in Romans, he refers to the mother of Rufus as his mother and mine. Apparently, she administered to Paul, and Paul considered her like another mother. So, so Paul is saying that as the church is subject to Christ, so why should be to their husbands? But in verse 24, he puts this little addition in there where he says, in everything. Why do you add those words? What's he up to? Well, first of all, when submitting to your husband as to the Lord in everything, it means that you can't create loopholes to dodge the commandment. <laughs> we need, you need to look for ways to make true submission happen and not look for ways to meet the letter of the law and omitting the spirit of the command. I mean, don't outwardly submit while you're hoping he fails so that you can be proven right. Or, even on a more serious note, and everything does not mean yielding to criminal behavior, including threats or physical abuse. I mean, a godly wife may endure some sinful verbal abuse, such as put-downs or name-calling or something on occasion, and she needs to talk to her husband about that and explain what that does to her, because she'd like to be close to him, but this kind of language really puts a wall between them. But if he's threatening physical abuse or death, she needs to take her kids and get someplace safe and get some godly counsel. Call the police. Call your elders for help. 
Don't put yourself in immediate danger. That is not what submission means. And a lot of women don't understand that, sadly enough. Maybe it's a Stockholm syndrome, maybe. But but also, I think there's a couple of, of insights, maybe principles that should guide us husbands, because sometimes we're in a situation where our wife really doesn't submit. And it really kind of bugs us, you know, because we're supposed to be doing this and leading. And if you don't have a follower, you're awful hard to be a leader. Uh, well, the first thing you need to realize is that, that biblical submission comes from within a person as a voluntary act of obedience and faith. Nobody in authority is ever commanded to forcefully bring about the submission of somebody who is authority-wise under them. I mean, a parent may be obligated to require a child to obey, but you can't. You can only encourage a child to submit. They're different terms. I remember a famous illustration that Howard Hendricks used to use, where he said that little Johnny's in the classroom, and the teacher says, "Sit down, Johnny," and he says, "No." And she says, "Johnny, I said sit down," and he says, "No." So she goes over and she pushes him down into his chair and he says, okay, now you're sitting down. He says, well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) That's not submission. That's obedience maybe, but it's not submission. And the second principle for, for husbands is that Christ is the model for our leadership. How does he deal with my failure to submit? Does he immediately use force to compel me? Remember, he's placed his spirit within us, and he works patiently to bring us to where we ought to be. So when a wife refuses to submit to her husband, the husband should turn in faith to him who can really change our hearts or change her heart. We should not seek to bring our wife to her knees in submission. We should fall to our knees in prayer. I'm going to add that to Marty's bumper sticker collection. We don't bring our wife to her knees in submission. We fall to our knees in prayer. And Christ brought about our submission through his sacrifice on the cross. That's something we need to worry or concern about, too. We should seek to bring others to submission by faithfully serving them in the same way that Jesus served us. I'll kind of use this illustration to, to conclude here. In the Old Testament, there was a woman named Abigail. And she was married to a man named Nabal, which means fool. If you thought a boy named Stu was a new idea, it's really not. Now, her husband was a rich man. He had a lot of sheep. Now, David, who was a fugitive from King Saul at that time, hid from Saul out on the hills where Nabal lived and kept his livestock. So, but during the time of David's presence with all his men, they protected Nabal's flocks, and he never incurred any loss while they were there. And yet, when David asked Nabal for food at the time of the shearing of the sheep, big celebration time, Nabal hotly and arrogantly refused. Now, David was really upset, and he set out to kill not only Nabal, but all, every male associated with his household, a vendetta. Now, Abigail knew that her husband had refused to give David what he'd asked for. She knew that he would forbid what she was about to do. Nevertheless, Abigail went out to meet David with her servants, along with the food that David had asked for. And she pled for David not to commit this evil by shedding blood, which would, of course, affect his reputation and would dog his heels as the future king of Israel. And David listened to her, even though he was angry, and received her gifts. 
Well, how can we justify Abigail's actions in the light of Paul's teaching? I mean, how could her actions possibly be an illustration of submission? They certainly were not acts of obedience. Yet Paul's, or Abigail is spoken of very favorably in 1 Samuel 25. The key to understanding, I think, the actions of Abigail is to understand the essence of what submission is. Submission is, submission is voluntarily placing yourself under someone else's authority. But it's not always expressed in terms of obedience to other people. Abigail placed herself under the authority of her husband, Nabal, as well as under David's authority as the king-to-be. And she placed her own interests below those of her husband. She couldn't defend or support the decision of her husband because he was wrong, but she put her life at risk in order to save his life. She laid her life on the line, and she went out to meet the man who was angry and ready to kill her husband, and she was part of his household. And she appealed to David for her husband's life and asked, whatever punishment you had in mind for Namal, visited it on me. I mean, what better thing could she do for her husband? How easy it would have been for her to give the appearance of submission. I mean, she could have embraced her husband's evil decision to reject and humiliate David, the future king of Israel, and that would have looked like submission. Or she could have chosen to do nothing. Once she realized that David was coming to kill Nabal and the other men in the household, and by this appearance of submission, she would have been rid of her hot-tempered husband. Doing nothing would have been to her advantage, while acting as she did put herself at great risk. By doing nothing, her husband would have died, at least, but by her intercession, he was saved, at least for a time. This is true submission. This is acting on behalf of another person for his benefit, but at your expense. She put her life on the line in order to show that she was willing, she was submissive to her husband and to the king. Almost an impossible situation, but she managed to pull it off, and the Lord entered in and changed David's heart. Well, I hope with all this you maybe have a better understanding of what true submission looked like. Once again, applications are left to the student. Uh, you know better how to apply this than I would in your individual situations. But as you walk with Christ under the control of the Holy Spirit who fills your life, if you yield to him, he's going to give you other opportunities to understand what this word submission and the whole concept means. Remember, we're submitting to another individual as we would submit to the Lord. So I wonder maybe if how we submit to the Lord is an indication of how we submit to other people. Maybe it's a spiritual relationship, once again, that precedes kind of the material thing and those spiritual principles. So if my relationship with the Lord is one of non-submission, that's going to affect, I think, other human relationships as well. And if, it's, if you're in a marriage relationship, it's going to affect that. So maybe it's a good way to double-check. If I'm not submitting, maybe I've got an issue with my failure to submit to the Lord, too. And, of course, when we think of submission, we always circle back to Jesus, our Savior, as he faced the cross, which is the event we're going to be remembering this morning with the Lord's Supper. Look at that passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, before he actually went to the garden, or the passage we looked at, actually had a Passover meal with his disciples, knowing full well what was going to happen. And he had already decided that he was willing to submit before he even got to the garden. And so this is the last Passover meal I'm going to celebrate with you. 
before in this side of the new kingdom. Uh, but he was looking forward and actually knew he was going to submit. But even in the middle of that angst in the garden, he already knew what the plan was. God allowed him to express it, but he still knew what he was going to do. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning, is he went through with it. Not only did he go through with it, he didn't do it grudgingly or of necessity. Hebrews 12, 1 put, and 2 puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that, he, that, that animated him during that time? What was the joy that was set before him? You are. He knew from the very beginning, we already saw that, that the church was coming, but he had to die first and receive the Holy Spirit in his place. His joy was seeing all these individuals who are going to be able now be rightly related to God the Father through him, who could now magnify the glory and the praise that's due God. He saw you, and that gave him great joy to be able to, he says, Endure the cross and despise the shame. So he's seated at the right hand of the Father as a result. So as we go into the Lord's Supper this morning, for one thing we need to realize is we need to take it seriously. Uh, and Paul tells us to make sure that there's really no unconfessed sin in your life, especially if it involves other people in the body. So if there's any situation you know where you need to clear something up with somebody this morning, this is your chance. Uh, so take care of those things before you actually offer yourselves. So what we're going to do this morning is uh, kind of our standard approach. Uh, the worship team, worship team is going to come up, and they're going to uh, play. And while they're playing this first song, the elements are going to be distributed by some volunteers I didn't pick out ahead of time. Uh, <coughs> but I know you'll rise to the occasion. Uh, and if you'll hold to the elements until we've all been served, including the worship team, then we'll, we'll partake together. So let's pray. Father, you are truly amazing. I just stand in awe at how you had all this figured out ahead of time. We, we somehow think that everything that you do is dependent upon how we do things well or not well. And yet, you put all these things into motion before the world was even created. Within, within the Godhead itself, within the Trinity itself, you already had things figured out and you knew that Jesus was going to offer his life so that we could have life. He was going to take our place. Oh, I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that now we can willingly submit to you, that wives can submit to their husbands. Husbands can love their wives as you love the church. What an amazing prospect, Father. And I just thank you for the spiritual reality that exists that we can see demonstrated in, in marriage and in the church. So help us, Father, to put into practice what we gleaned from this morning, from this message, from, mainly from this scripture. Help us drive us back to the scripture, Father, to help us understand how we need to live in a way that glorifies you. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.